I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville, and I'm doing this podcast again. <laughs> I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, and here I am also doing the podcast again. We're the second week in a row that we're doing the podcast again. Here we are. Yeah, we might not, we might keep on doing it. Probably. Uh, this is the 60th episode of the Magnificast. Uh, that's pretty cool. We've come a long way. And there's a lot the of big really... big 6-0. Yeah, the big 6-0. We're over the hill again. I don't know. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> that's right. Uh, a lot of cool stuff happened this week. Uh, it was Karl Marx's birthday. That was a big a big fun thing. Uh, yeah, Dean, how'd you celebrate Karl Marx's B-Day? What'd you get him? Oh, I uh, I just got him a nice, uh, a really nice zero euro from his hometown where he was born. I bought one of those. Oh, uh, cool. <laughs> just got him yeah. a, got him an Amazon gift card. <laughs> now he can buy all his books finally. Yeah, finally. Uh, After well, he what died. I, <laughs> yeah, what I should have done is. Uh, gifted him a brand new uh the magnificast t-shirt a few months ago we sold a bunch of cool magnificast t-shirts and now we're selling them again uh this time a little bit of a different way um anyways if you're interested in a the magnificast t-shirt you can go uh check it out at cottonbureau.com slash product slash the dash magnificast a really great and accessible url uh (laughs) and buy one of our cool shirts uh, they're actually not very expensive, and they look good, and they still got that good Magnificast logo on there uh, from Ben Wildflower. So get out there, check it out, uh, and buy them all up. Uh, the thing about these uh, shirts, though, is that we have to sell 12 of them, uh, or they won't make them. I don't know how the how this really works, <laughs> but that's the deal. So get out there, uh, buy up a shirt, and support your favorite leftist Christian podcast, the only one, ours, right now. Well, there are a couple. Maybe there's some friendly anarchist uh, fans out there. Friendly yeah. anarchism fans. Yeah, friendly anarchism actually have they have t-shirts too. That's true. Buy one of those. <laughs> Listen, buy a uh, shirt. I don't care whose. I'm just saying. <laughs> Someone's you shirt. Need them. It's summertime. Get those t-shirts. Get rid of your sleeves. Abolish all sleeves. Uh, cool. Well, 
buy a t-shirt in the meantime send us some itunes reviews and i understand that we have uh two of them yeah week. we got two great uh itunes reviews um so the first one uh is titled howdy five to five stars howdy 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 <laughs> it's a real, real toy story deep cut for you five to five stars uh cool uh this user writes i have no clue how to meme you guys so i'll just be serious thank thank god uh, I'm an Orthodox Christian who had a matushka raise me. Is that how you say that word? Matushka? Oh, I don't know. You were asking the wrong non-Orthodox Christian. <laughs> yeah, same. Same, same, same. Well, okay. <laughs> That's probably how you say it. If it's not, uh, sorry. Um, okay, sorry. Uh, I'm an Orthodox Christian who had a matushka raise me and nearly went to the clergy back in high school. I really love what you guys are doing, given my background. It pushes me through the work week. My coworker has turned me on to various leftist podcasts, and I'm glad you guys are there as a buffer of sorts between anarchism, Marxism, and pure, truthful Christianity. Uh, going to art school and experiencing a decent education in critical theory, I was always seen as an outcast when I'd cite the Bible while writing a paper on Marx. Thanks for making me feel extra welcome in this strange new oasis. Nice. That's cool. Hey, you're welcome. Like, you are welcome. <laughs> you specifically. Cool. Uh, we have one more review. Uh, five to five stars. Awesome podcast. Uh, this this one is uh, actually from Devin Bowers. Devin Bowers is a uh, uh, person over at the – I don't know like what his official title is, but he's a person <laughs> over at the Hampton Institute that runs their podcast. And you can actually hear us on that podcast with uh, Tina Reeves and Sarah New um, talking about Christian leftism. And it's a pretty fun time. So – uh, he was also nice enough to stop by our iTunes page and give us a review. He says, I greatly enjoy this podcast for not only its intersection between Christianity and leftist politics, something you don't hear often, but also the interesting guests and topics that are delved into. Matt and Dean put in work like Thanos put in work on the Hulk. Keep it up, guys. <laughs> Much love from the Hamptons, too. Uh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Uh, well, that's only the first like five seconds of that movie, so it's probably okay. <laughs> Yeah, but now everyone who is like, oh, do, huh, does Thanos fight the Hulk or what? Uh, now they know. <laughs> People have been on the edge of their seats about that exact question, too. <laughs> uh, that's cool. Uh, thanks, Devin. Hampton Institute's really cool. If you guys aren't reading that regularly, you should. they got a podcast, and we've been on it one time, so go listen to it. Good stuff. Yep. It is good stuff. Uh, here's a great... A great transition. Just a very good segue that, that is extremely natural and in no way forced. The Hampton Institute, uh, they talk about all kinds of really cool communist stuff. And you know what we're going to do today is talk about very cool communist stuff as well. Specifically, an essay by Rosa Luxemburg called Socialism and the Churches. Uh, Matt, why is that super cool? Uh, it's super cool because this Rosa Luxemburg essay is, first of all, short and really accessible. Definitely something you could hand out to all your friends at church in your small group. Um, so do that and see what their reactions are. Uh, Distributed by Lifeway Press. <laughs> that's right. Uh, it's cool, but it also touches on basically every single sort of theme that we've talked about over the last 60 episodes. So we're going to get into it. Um has a lot of good stuff in here about uh, the relationship between communists and Christianity and how they don't really care what you think. And also has a lot to do with communism in the Bible. So uh, that's also a really good thing, too. Um, the uh, the Church of Acts is something that we reference a lot on this podcast because they are, I mean, I think what Marx might call primitive communists. Um and people are always quick to jump out and describe Jesus as a socialist. And that's all fine. 
I think that's good stuff. Like, why not? Um, but uh, if this is the case that like the church in Acts was a type of, a type of communist community, and Jesus is kind of like a socialist, how is it that we end up in a place today where uh, Christians are often so conservative, reactionary, and in favor uh, for whatever reason of private property? Um, so that's kind of why we're reading this uh, essay by Rosa Luxemburg, because she answers just that question. Uh, sort of the thesis statement behind this entire essay is this. Uh, she writes, How does it happen that the church plays the role of defense of wealth and bloody oppression instead of being the refuge for the exploited? This is the question that we think we are always kind of coming back to basically every single mm-hmm. week. Uh, so uh, Rosa Luxemburg has got an answer for us. So let's uh, figure it out. Let's do it. Uh, so cool stuff about this essay, I guess. Um, it was published by the Polish Social Democratic Party in 1905. Um, so that's pretty important because Poland is a, uh, pretty thickly Catholic European country. So getting the church on your side is pretty important, or at least explaining to people that you're not on the other side of the church. Um, but what I think is great about this is that Luxembourg actually goes a pretty far distance trying to make the case that uh, not only do communists not care whether you're religious or not, but they also have really helpful ways of explaining to religious people like why there are some barriers between these two communities and like really trying to work out the, the material reasons for that. So, um, yeah, I think probably the best place to start is just by looking at how she articulates communism in the bible uh like you were just saying matt that's a really fun thing to talk about uh but also like she goes out of her way to say that the church of acts is not exactly the social democratic party (laughs) right Uh, they're not doing the same thing and they're not really even trying to do the same thing and it's important to note the distance between those things and the kind of spiritual similarities between them so maybe just like a good way into it is to kind of start out there. So Matt, uh, I know I just threw it to you, but I'm gonna do it again. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Why don't you uh, w- <laughs> walk us in? Uh, what's communism in the Bible according to Rosa Luxemburg? Yeah, uh, Rosa Luxemburg has a really. I'm gonna stop saying her full name. I'm just gonna start saying Rosa. Is that okay? Rosie. Roseanne. Rosa, no, uh, wait a minute. R- R- Rosa's probably the best. Yeah, probably. Rosa Luxemburg is a lot to say every single time, so watch That's me true. not. First name basis. We're on first name basis, I guess. Uh, just like me and Carl. Uh, okay, so, <laughs> uh, so she has a lot to say about communism in the Bible, uh, but it's a really actually helpful nuance, especially uh, because we could let our imaginations kind of run away with the idea of communism and, and acts. And, like, it's fine to do that but i think she provides a really good material analysis of why uh we should be careful about the way we think about communism in the bible and also how uh we can kind of correct some of those ideas so uh rosa is all about uh this term that she kind of comes up with which i appreciate uh sort of a descriptor for the type of communism practiced in acts and that is called the communism of consumption but not production um so here's a quote that I think will uh start to get into what communism of consumption means um and why it's an important distinction. Rosa writes, "The Christians of the 1st and 2nd centuries were fervent supporters of communism, but this communism was based on the consumption of finished products and not on work, and proved itself incapable of reforming society, of putting an end to the inequality between men and throwing down the barrier which separated rich from poor. For exactly as before, the riches created by labor came back to restricted groups of possessors. 
Because the means of production, especially the land, remained individual property because the labor for the whole society was furnished by slaves, the people, deprived of the means of subsistence, only received alms according to the good pleasure of the rich. So the idea that she's laying out here is that uh, communism as we see it in Acts is a sharing of possessions, which is, I think, good and nice and something we can think about a lot. Um, but it is not the same type of communism as like the Social Democratic Party or even as like most socialists actually aspire to. It's not the uh, workers owning the means of production, but it's the sharing of goods between people. So communism in the Bible is a thing, but, you know, it could be better. <laughs> yeah, I think, too, she goes uh, to the trouble of doing a, a kind of snapshot, I guess, of what Rome was like for early Christians and one thing that she points out is that in Rome, there's all this slave labor, which is bad, uh, but it also creates this bad situation for people who aren't slaves, but also aren't rich, or what you could call the proletariat, though they're not the proletariat in, in a kind of capitalist sense, because they can't sell their labor even at all. So what you have is all these people kind of stuck, right? They're dependent on whether or not people will distribute them goods at all, or any kind of wealth. And they, they're they not laborers, per se. Uh, they just kind of are dependent on what the state gives them or what people give them. And so she says Christianity is a really liberating moment in that kind of a context because there are all kinds of people who uh, don't have the ability to even get stuff. So in that sense, the communism of consumption makes sense because consumption is a big problem. Like, you can't, uh, you can't get anything to consume in the first place. So by creating these communities where everybody's sharing stuff and people are selling the things that they have and contributing to a common pool, uh, you you are able to subvert that sort of social problem and do a little bit more than just survive, right? You can survive in a, in a loving community that affirms you as a person who's been exploited or marginalized. And I think that's really neat that she she really picks up on why Christianity would be especially liberating in that context. Uh, but she also points out the deficiencies of that as a overarching political sort of strategy or moment. Because at the end of the day, you can give all the stuff that you have to a big group of people, but the landowners who produced all that stuff still own that land uh, outside the Christian community or the kind of property relationships um, outside that uh, those little enclaves of sharing. Uh, those remain unchanged, and that means the situation of scarcity and the necessity for consuming goods together, uh, those things are still intact, which is not what you want. It's a it's a repetitive problem because the root isn't really plucked up. It's just sort of treating a, a symptom of a disease. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good uh, summary of what's going on. I think it's also worth just saying that uh, it's not like um, we can really like hold the early church at fault for these things, too. I mean, you know, they... They weren't like materialist, <laughs> materialist uh, in the same sense as like Rose Luxemburg is or Marxists are. It's also the case too right. that like the the pre-capitalist time is uh, kind of different in some really important ways. But I think what we do see is are some striking similarities between sort of the failure of the early church to really change society or at least to really change social relations, and I think to the situation that we're in uh, contemporaneously. I mean, it's not really all that different. Um, like if we all kind of were if we all reverted to this type of early christian communism or something it would be nice but ultimately uh capitalism wouldn't care um so something to think about there yeah i think so 
Well, maybe we should focus on a few of the things that Rosa affirms about early Christians and some things that she thinks are really cool because she tries really hard to kind of highlight things that she appreciates about Christianity. And then later on, we can get into maybe some of the critical bits that she has to say about the clergy or about the history of Christianity in general. Um, So, yeah, like Matt was just saying, um, there's all kinds of really neat stuff going on in the early church, um, but it doesn't pose a, a threat to what will become capitalism in the future and also the property relations that exist at that time. So she kind of summarizes all that, uh, saying the early Christians believed that they could remedy the poverty of the proletariat by means of the riches offered by the possessors. That would be to draw water in a sieve. Christian communism was not only incapable of changing or of improving the economic situation, uh, it also did not last. So we can talk a little bit about how that operates in a little, in a in a while here. Um, but let's talk first about what she has to say about like the communal table and maybe like how property is shared and what's good about that in Christian communities. So one thing that she talks about a lot is uh, like the diffusion of ownership. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. I thought that was pretty neat. What did you think about that, Matt? Yeah, I think that uh, if the analysis is that the the communism of the early church is not perfect, uh, there are still some things to definitely glean from it, some things that we could um, probably reincorporate into our own Christian imaginations for the better. Uh, so I think that the first thing that she comes up with that she thinks is at least a good idea kind of coming out of that Church of Acts is the emphasis on the diffusion of ownership. This is like uh, denouncing uh, private property in those Christian communities. Uh, So this is what she says on the topic, and it's uh, pretty cool. Uh, She says, The diffusion of ownership is the cause of poverty. Let's take as an example a household composed of a husband, a wife, and ten children. The wife being occupied in weaving wool, the husband in bringing in the wages of his work outside, tell me in which case this family would spend more. If they live together in common or live separately, obviously, if they live separately, 10 houses, 10 tables, 10 servants, and 10 special allowances would be needed for the children if they uh, all were separated. Uh, What do you do? Uh, Indeed, if you have many slaves, is it not true that in order to keep expenses down, you feed them on a common table? The division is a cause of impoverishment. Concord and the unity of wills is a cause of riches. So there's kind of an interesting idea here uh, that like... um, holding holding property in community with one another or sort of like not believing in private property uh, is another way of saying that same thing is actually like a more efficient way to manage resources in the sense that like it costs less to do more uh, a real sort of dave ramsey kind of insight but you know <laughs> like better <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right except i'm pretty sure dave ramsey's 10 children all live in 10 separate houses yeah i'm most sure that's true <laughs> uh yeah i think it's great too because it feels like a kind of uh a, like elementary point right that uh doing the kind of family analogy helps her to bring this idea out that you know if, if a family lives separately that's kind of absurd and that's why families don't in in some ways uh, they don't because it makes way more economic sense to have everybody under one roof um But what is fascinating about the early Christians, and she notes this in her discussion as well, is that they kind of become like one big giant family. And uh, she notes that early Christian communities would host strangers from other Christian communities, uh, kind of noting this idea. And I guess just betting on the fact that if they all pooled their, their lives together... 
they would be able to sort of build up um, some kind of uh, of life together outside of the poverty of being like diffused proletarians with no way of uh, of gaining the means to uh, to buy anything, let alone like have a, a good happy life. Yeah, uh, we can talk about this more in a little in a little bit when we get to some of the other parts of this essay. But like, there's even a there's even a part in the essay where she notes that like, um, if there is a if there's a person who was, you know, particularly rich in the Christian community, they actually own two houses, they would give one up to someone that didn't have a house like that was sort of right. like the level of devotion to the idea of the community and holding property in common with one another. Yeah. Um, she also makes a pretty fun uh, observation about this with respect to contemporary life and uh monasteries which i think is pretty cool so we're kind of we've just been hinting at the ways in which early christian communities might kind of inform our imaginations now but rosa kind of does a little bit of that work for us in a pretty provocative and and fun way so she says uh in the monasteries they still live as in the early church and who dies of hunger there who has not found enough to eat there yet the men of our times fear living that way more than they fear falling into the sea why have we not tried it? We should fear it less. <laughs> yeah. I think that's such a great line. Like, um, there are actually kind of examples of this around in the world right now uh, in monasteries that try to preserve that idea of a common consumption. And monasteries have more going on. I mean, a lot of them also have to work, right, to provide that uh, means of subsistence. But um, I just like that idea of kind of... Um, not thinking that these sort of experiments are lost to the sands of time or something, uh, but they carry on through history. And also one reason that they don't carry on in a bigger way is that people are genuinely sort of afraid of what would happen if people took it too seriously. Yeah, I totally agree. That's a a really funny insight. I spent a little bit of time last fall at a monastery and had some similar ideas that, I mean, like what they're doing is, um, I mean, not explicitly leftist in really any way, because it's just kind of like their church tradition. And in fact, probably a lot of the members um, of that specific uh, abbey that I was at, you know, were probably actually pretty conservative, but still in the same, I mean, they're still living sort of in this communal lifestyle uh, where they didn't really own anything. They have vows of poverty even, um, and they do just fine. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> so there. I don't know. <laughs> uh, they all live by a certain set of like rules and discipline and it all just works out. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. They don't have uh, Xboxes, but like they could if they wanted to. That's true. <laughs> In common. That's what they need. A, mon- a monastic Xbox community. Right. Xbox Live, but with monks. <laughs> they all have to share one gamer tag. <laughs> the gamer that That's Jesus right. loved. Yeah. Um uh as much as i would love to imagine so many more monastic gamer tags um i'm also (laughs) extremely afraid of it uh (laughs) but uh yeah uh mostly because i'm i'm afraid of like running into a monk while playing like fortnite or something yeah um but (laughs) let's uh talk a little bit more about kind of maybe how these things are cool ideas for Rosa Luxemburg, but why they don't ultimately pan out the way that people want them to. Um, So she talks about how like Christians have really good intentions and some of the most fiery voices within the Christian community are good examples of that uh, sort of denouncing the rich and valorizing the poor. Uh, But the problem is that rich people just didn't care (laughs) or, or weren't made to care materially. 
so she pulls out a bunch of examples. Um, she quotes John Chrysostom, as you'd probably expect if you're familiar with like early church fathers or whatever. Uh, I think uh, a mutual favorite of ours uh, that Matt and I were talking about before recording was a quote she pulls out from Gregory the Great uh, of the 6th century. So I'll read this quote real quick. Um, he writes and she quotes... It is by no means enough not to steal the property of others. You are in error if you keep to yourself the wealth which God has created for all. He who does not give to others what he possesses is a murderer, a killer. When he keeps for his own use what would provide for the poor, one can say that he is slaying all those who could have lived from his plenty. When we share with those who are suffering, we do not give what belongs to us, but what belongs to them. This is not an act of pity, but the payment of a debt. Pretty good yeah stuff. it's so good uh there's a you lot can tell why he's so great yeah he's uh, gregory the great for this quote specifically <laughs> uh it's so cool because well okay so i feel like in most conversations that i have about socialism or whatever i have to explain that like you know i'm a socialist because i'm like opposed to violence in a lot of different ways and that capitalism is basically a type of violence and, like, you know, people accuse me in those situations of having to do some type of mental gymnastics or redefine violence as being, you know, own, like, owning all of the stuff while people don't own anything. But here's uh, uh, this really great guy, Gregory, Greg, uh, in the 6th century, in, like, the 500s, who's basically saying this exact same thing. Like, the elaboration of systemic violence uh, through economic means is, like, here in this quote. And I think that's something to pay attention to. But this is something that... Uh, is in the Christian imaginary that it's like there in our past and we could probably start recalling it if we wanted to and we should. Yeah. Um, there's also a really kind of obvious correlation here between what Proudhon says about property is theft. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, Rosa Luxemburg is not an anarchist, but nevertheless, uh, what's cool is that he starts this little quote saying it's not enough not to steal the property of others. And then he ends the quote saying, uh, giving to other people is the payment of a debt, uh, which is to suggest that by, by taking it, you've created the debt already. Um, and I think that's a pretty cool thing as well, right? That like, there's something actually really unnatural and, and bad about individual property. Yeah. Uh, something that is just uh, a, a sort of farcical assumption that this is yours and then you're giving it back out of, out of pity for people who are poor when in fact uh you're you're giving back something that's already theirs that you s stole through whatever means yeah totally i mean i think that there's well i think that the disbelief of private property is actually a really christian idea um we talked about this yeah. in previous episodes too but like I, I mean another story in acts that that luxembourg doesn't talk about but we talked about in a past episode was ananias and sapphira these are two people in the early mm -hmm. the early church and like they are the people uh it's actually a pretty brutal story if you read it uh but basically god strikes them down both dead because they didn't offer up all of their money to the community like they withhold they withheld their own property they didn't want to share it with everybody um and then like god kills them <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that's the thing to think about <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty rough end for them yeah um, but i mean i guess i say that just because uh that there's there's a precedent for this type of thinking about um property and withholding it sort of privately for your own sake and keeping it from god and the larger community is a 
type of theft. I guess it really, yeah. to me, it's just so important because I think that a lot of Christians don't really even think about private property as a question. I don't think that most people in general think about private property as sort of an ethical question or a political question, <laughs> uh, but Christians definitely not, you know? Um, I mean, there, there are churches out in the world that have like security forces and security teams that are there to like make sure nobody breaks in and steals stuff. But um, I don't know. I think these things should kind of call those types of weird practices of power over space and uh, and commodities into question. Yeah, well, like most cops probably think of themselves as Christians, right? Like, that's true. And if you look at any police department's Twitter for more than a day, uh, the things that they always talk about are safety for people and also safety for property, right? They That's that's the whole reason that police exist. Yeah. Uh, and that's not just a leftist point. Like, police are like, yeah, we exist to protect your dang private property so nobody else gets any of it. Uh, and it's pretty wild that Christianity ends up kind of leading to the uh, a world where uh, not only is modern society in the West, especially, but increasingly around the globe, built on the notion of private property, but there are whole violent apparatuses designed to protect it. When here you have somebody like Gregory the Great saying, uh, "You're not, uh, <laughs> you're not in sin per se by like not stealing from somebody. You're actually in sin when you uh, think that you're not stealing from somebody, even though you actually are." Yeah. Well, uh, we can all agree uh that gregory is indeed pretty great uh but uh luxembourg follows up this cool quote from him by saying uh these appeals remained fruitless uh but the fault was by no means with the christians of those days who were indeed more responsive to the words of the fathers of the church than are the christians of today this is not the first time in the history of humanity that economic conditions have shown themselves to be stronger than fine speeches dang um so I mean, don't take the wind right out of your sails. Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a good dose of realism. But I mean, like I get it. It makes sense, right? Like um, the rich people don't care <laughs> that they're stealing because, like, they're rich. So, like, what do they care? Um, yeah, Gregory the Great can say all the things he wants, but uh, they're still rich at the end of the, end of the day. So whatever. Yeah, it's uh, especially rough because there are so many examples of saints, especially who do hear really fine speeches. And they do end up making radical decisions about their economic lives. So the most famous, I guess, at least the one that comes to mind for me, is somebody like uh, St. Anthony, who's uh, the one of the sort of fathers of monasticism. And so the big story about him is he goes to church one day and he hears this story about how, you know, you got to sell everything that you own. Jesus says that. And then he's like, oh, no, turns out I actually kind of own a lot. Uh, so he sells it all and then he goes out into the desert and lives this life of total poverty. And, you know, he creates a, a pretty massive, like, mark in the history of Christianity. Uh, and that's cool, but, like, obviously the majority of rich people didn't have that same reaction. So, uh, for all the sort of saintly stories of people hearing those words and turning, uh, there are unfortunately many, many, many more stories of non-saintly people uh, hearing those words and uh, just being like, whatever, this is mine. Yeah, I mean, I think a good chunk of theology today, not all of it, but like, you know, a pretty good chunk of theology is people trying to figure out how they can keep their wealth and still be Christians. Yeah, totally. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, whenever a radical verse comes up in my church, someone has to explain, well, it doesn't actually mean this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You gotta tone that down. Not that I'm, like, giving all my money away either, but I'd be open to it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, at the same time, though, like, imagine going to church and hearing your priest or pastor say that uh, whatever you don't give to others, um, that makes you a murderer or a killer. Like, that is not going to fly in the homily in my parish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's kind of make that transition away from the early church and into maybe some reasons that Rosa Luxemburg talks about uh, that pertain to why we don't care about those things. Because one thing that's so great about this article and one thing that I think is great about Marxism in general is that it's not just a judgment on, like, all these people said some stuff and then rich people are just jerks. And that's why we're not communists today. Uh, instead, it's like there are real historical reasons and uh, real social reasons that these kinds of things don't land, that these kinds of speeches don't land. Uh, it's not just because rich people have hardened their hearts or whatever, though that might be part of it. Um, there's all kinds of other reasons as well. And uh, just to sort of start from where we are now and then kind of work backward and fill in some of the gaps, I think there's a great insight from Rosa where she talks about the kind of double standard that priests end up having nowadays, uh, so far away from somebody like Gregory the Great. So she says, the majority of priests with beaming faces bow and scrape to the rich and powerful, silently pardoning them for every depravity, every iniquity. With the workers, the clergy behave quite otherwise. They think only of squeezing them. In harsh sermons, they condemn the covetousness of the workers when these latter do no more than defend themselves against the wrongs of capitalism. So uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about how we go from somebody like Gregory the Great to a situation where uh, priests have this double standard, um, sort of valorizing the rich and then uh, criticizing the poor criticizing workers for trying to get theirs when it actually is theirs. So one way that she kind of draws this line is by doing a sort of materialist analysis of church history. And what I mean by that is she looks through uh, the history of Christianity and tries to sort out uh, maybe like two main strands. One is how Christians went from being a kind of egalitarian community, uh, a communist uh, communism of consumption and then they become a sort of stratified community uh, with priests and bishops and, and pastors and uh, all kinds of property associated with them specifically that doesn't get shared to other folks. Um, so as she kind of tells the story, primitive communists uh, slowly develop into the stratified church. And then in capitalism, that church accumulates a, a ton of property and capital, uh, and they own like significant percentages of land in a bunch of countries and in a kind of cruel irony i guess the poor have to survive on the alms of the church which is like a really wild situation so she has a bunch of specifics in terms of how this historically plays out but i think what i like so much about the approach is that like there are a lot of christians who will say things like uh well the reason that we don't have this kind of primitive communism today is that like people just don't want to hear it or they're like living in sin or something and if we just heard like the true message of the church or something like people would turn and, and change but what rosa luxemburg goes out of her way to show is that well uh that true message ends up kind of changing itself throughout the history of the church uh in a way where the solution wouldn't be just to like roll back the clock to say a medieval sort of conception of property or 
uh, even to a kind of capitalist landed church conception of property. Um, so yeah, I don't know, Matt, was there anything kind of in her analysis that really sticks out to you about how we got from Gregory to uh, a priestly double standard on wealth? Uh, I don't know in terms of material analysis if anything sticks out to me. I, mean, I think she's right. Um, I know in my church specifically that these types of ideas come out all of the time. Um, so again, I'm I like I go to like a Methodist church, and Methodism it comes out of this uh, the thought of this guy named John Wesley. People are crazy about John Wesley. Uh, <laughs> I'm not super crazy about him, but whatever. John Wesley's philosophy of money is exactly what Rosa Luxemburg is saying here, though. Uh, on on money, uh, John Wesley is like uh, you got to gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can, and like that's kind of like the <laughs> those are his like I, again like the very Dave Ramsey approach <laughs> uh, to being a Christian. Like oh man, you got to make all you got to work hard and make a lot of money so you can give it to the people who you know you think deserve it or something, or the church should give it to the people who think you should deserve it. Um, yeah, I mean I think that is a pretty far cry from some of these like really early attempts at being Christian in communities. And uh, it's kind of a bummer to see that's like sort of the way that's transformed itself. <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's good to fight against that type of thought so hard because um, well, because it serves, it serves the rich and the powerful and not the workers. And I think that's like, you know, fundamentally bad. Um, I like uh, the, the point that Luxembourg makes after that is a pretty good, good one i think she says that socialism does not consist of generous gifts made by the rich to the poor but in the total abolition of the very difference between rich and poor by compelling all alike to work according to their capacity by the suppression of the exploitation of man by man so uh the the point that she makes here and i think that the point that all christians should pay more attention to especially christians who lean left is like uh the point of the church is not to um yeah give alms to the poor or like give charity but to end end the like the struggle of class against class like why uh why actively participate in something that is actually bad for people or actually like uh, exacerbates the problems uh instead just fight for a better world the abolition of the very difference between rich and poor uh seems more christian than just giving people money yeah i think too the uh the link between that materialist history that she tells and uh her kind of criticism of the early church um and its primitive communism is really helpful here because um there is this weird pathology that enters into christianity when you only focus on redistributing goods for consumption and you miss the point of production so uh, the church ends up later on becoming this uh, institution that can kind of redistribute what is given to it and then later make its own capital by giving out loans and stuff like that, uh, which is pretty wild. Um, but it would not be able to do that, or at least maybe putting it better, it would be much harder to do that if you targeted, uh, say, like communizing means of production rather than just communizing fruits of other people's labor or your own labor. Uh, and I think that like there's a really huge kind of at least for me that's like a, a really huge like eye opener that I think one reason a lot of Christians have trouble with communism is that like they can get the sharing side mm -hmm. but they can't get the production side 
And that's something that has like built the church in a certain way, both the Catholic and, and Protestant churches, uh, built them in a certain way that actually precludes them from asking more structural questions. Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, so it's at this point when I feel like um, like John Thornton's in my head a little too much. Um, or maybe John <laughs> Thornton's in my head the right amount. But it's like, um, to me, as like, you know, a Christian person who's on like, you know, a board at my church and participates in stuff, uh, it seems like Luxembourg just wants us to make a better church. <laughs> well, I mean, she wants us to be communist, actually, but uh, but that there's like, uh, that there's something that like the types of communist analysis can really add to people who are actively engaged in churches. Um, or engaged in Christianity. So um, (laughs) this is like the the Rosa Luxemburg edition of like purpose-driven Christianity or whatever that book is called. (laughs) (laughs) The communist-driven church. Yeah, the communist-driven church. Uh, So uh, it's kind of like communism is actually a good evangelism strategy. Like if you actually focus on these structural issues and try to uh, resolve them or help struggle towards the resolution of the structural issues, like you might get more people to come to your church actually. Like if you like actually provided food for people or uh, a dignified uh, way to struggle against capitalism or a place to live, uh, they might actually care more about what you're doing in the world than just if you tell them like, well, you should save all your money. Um, (laughs) yeah, so she uh, she says, uh, this is actually right after that quote about monasteries, but she kind of goes on to say, uh, if a few of the faithful, hardly 8,000, dared in the face of the whole world, where they have nothing but enemies, to make a courageous attempt to live in common without any outside help, how much more could we do it today, now that there are Christians throughout the world? Uh, would there remain one single Gentile? Not one. I believe we would attract them all and win them to us. Uh, so, it's, <laughs> I mean, uh, it's this really funny point where it's just like, yeah, I mean, if Christians were communists, people might care about church more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that also is something that John Thornton said on our podcast a little while back, right? That, um, if your church was known for like paying people's debts and, uh, advocating for a more just society, then like, it would be pretty hard not to want to go. And that motivation of wanting to go so that your material needs are met is not a cynical motivation, nor is it some kind of way to like supplant some secret true message about salvation and Christianity or whatever. Like that is an extension of hopefully if you believe that, however you believe that Jesus uh, saves you through his work on the cross or resurrection or whatever, um, that should materially manifest, right? And it should also motivate you to change the material conditions around you. Uh, And that would be the kind of thing that would actually draw people into it. I mean, it's telling that like so in my family i'm like one of the only people who takes christianity seriously at all uh like at family reunions all my siblings are like ah that's that christian guy and uh (laughs) it's fine like no big deal uh but what's great about it is uh they they tell me all kinds of good criticisms of christianity uh one of them especially being like yeah, why would I go to the church? Like, it's just getting out of bed in the morning and then, like, sitting in a boring place for an hour and then nothing happens and you go home and there's, like, you like you still have the same bills to pay. Uh, that's, like, one of my brother's, like, main main problems is, like, he still has all the same bills. And, uh, but, like, what if you didn't? Yeah. <laughs> like, what if, uh, what if you didn't have those bills to pay because you went to church? Not just out of the a communism of consumption, though that would be important, uh, but also because the church was actively trying to make a society where you didn't have to pay those bills. Yeah. I think that'd be great. 
<laughs> I would definitely miss church less. <laughs> I mean, right now yeah, I go to okay. church because I get some like bread and some juice, and that's like a nice snack mid morning. But uh, <laughs> I think it's a good plan. Um. So this this point in particular is like apropos of nothing, but I want to mention it as we're like getting to the end of this episode, just because I think it's actually really funny and also kind of true. Um. So she has this great point about like crime and how in clergy dominated societies like she points to italy and spain and also rome um in clergy dominated societies they have like more crime statistically than societies where like workers parties have a a kind of significant majority and it's pretty great because she says it repeats the same christian problem where the the christian solution to poverty is basically to be like hey don't like don't do these things like don't be bad uh don't uh rich people don't just keep stuff to yourself like give it to other people um but the problem is like that isn't actually why people are bad or why people don't um distribute their wealth there are like real material reasons for it and uh so she talks about how like in societies that aren't run primarily by the clergy but instead by workers movements um the crime rate is much lower because people aren't like fighting to survive because the conditions of production are different and the distribution of wealth is different. Uh, and I think that's actually like a really great point. Like um, it's kind of like a weird, like final point for her. So she goes through all the stuff and it's like, if you're still not convinced, then like, I don't know, do you want to live in a society that encourages people to be criminals or not? Like that's, that's a pretty good argument actually. Yeah, I think so. Um, Coming off of a uh, a semester where I've like done lots of research with my students about incarceration, I thought that was like a pretty um, a cool point, and also one that I've seen kind of play out through all all of the different research that we've been into. Like, if you want people to uh, do less crime, well, I mean, first of all, stop making stupid stuff illegal. That's a pretty good thing to do. <laughs> uh, like uh, drug crimes, that's like the it's so dumb. Uh, anyways, but but also like uh, if people actually have like uh, if they have resources, if they uh, have the things they need in their life, they won't commit crime. Just a thing. It's true. Social science says so. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I think too because it's just like another way of kind of hammering home that point that Christians have these uh, assumptions about how you would change people's minds. And it's not that they don't always work. Like some people get moved by good words and, you know, good, like moral questions and that's fine. Uh, But at the end of the day, like if you're just telling somebody to be good and their society is constantly putting them in an environment that tries to make them bad. uh, Well, that, that doesn't seem like a very uh, good way to make somebody good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I guess, I mean, I'm just going to reiterate this point because I think it's true and good that like uh, that Christians can become way better Christians if they read Rosa Luxemburg and become communists. Um, <laughs> like you're not going to, they like, you just like really won't understand the world as good as you want to, uh, as good as you should, if you aren't a materialist, like that's just the truth of the matter. Yeah, I think so. Um, all right, well, let's, uh, let's get to her conclusion and then we can maybe offer some concluding thoughts on, uh, our, our dear friend Reza here. So she gets to the end and she ends this, uh, this little essay by saying, and here's the answer to all the attacks of the clergy, because the clergy were attacking the communists, the social democracy, uh, or the social democratic party in no way fights against religious beliefs. 
On the contrary, it demands complete freedom of conscience for every individual and the widest possible toleration for every faith and every opinion. That's something that we've seen said in the past by Fidel and Lenin and a bunch of other people. But from the moment when the priests use the pulpit as a means of political struggle against the working classes, the workers must fight against the enemies of their rights and their liberation. For he who defends the exploiters and who helps to prolong this present regime of misery, he is the mortal enemy of the proletariat, whether he be in a Cossack or in the uniform of the police. It's a very good closing line. Yeah, it really is. I think that idea um, that idea rings true through so many of our episodes. I mean, right, like Lenin, Fidel. I mean, even in uh, when we talked to Heath Carter the first time, that was a huge part of his book there, too, that the people from the pulpit were spreading anti-worker propaganda and, and they like let them know about it um so that's a it's a strong point and i think it's worth repeating um for as long as we do this podcast uh, <laughs> uh christians don't do this <laughs> don't do this thing because you'll end up on the wrong <laughs> side of that fight yeah and not only that that uh like priests and pastors don't get a free pass just to be on the wrong side of the class struggle um, that's something that I find so frustrating among a lot of Christians. Like there's a real kind of fetishization of the authority in religious communities, especially in mine in the Catholic community. Mm. And it's really dangerous because like, yeah, like I respect my parish priest a lot. Like he's a really nice guy and he teaches me a lot of good things. And I go there because like, I hope that he can help me be a better person and a better Christian. And I think that he really does. Uh, but at the same time, like, uh, it's not as though if he says something against like um, the struggle for like liberation of workers or, or any other kind of marginalized groups, it's not as though he just gets a free pass for that because he's like an ordained priest because like a bishop said that he was nice or mm-hmm. that I said that he was nice. Right. Uh, and I think that's like a really important thing that people in the pews have to understand that they have an agency and that they're also just as much a part of the church as any other kind of hierarchical member of it. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like, communize the churches not just by communizing property but also by communizing like voices and uh, opinions and that kind of a thing i think that's a really a really cool thing and also the thing i loved most about what heath carter uh, was talking to us about in union made like there were all these workers who just walked out of their church on uh, sundays like they would show up and then just uh, get up and basically have like a like a pew strike like a church strike um, to kind of show that they were in solidarity against what the clergy was saying. And it wasn't because they weren't Christians or because they hated the clergy, but because they recognized that, like, just because you're a pastor doesn't mean that you actually know uh, where Jesus is in a certain struggle. Mm-hmm. And it's important to remind pastors of that sometimes, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, I guess for me, this whole thing, I guess, just really demonstrates the ways that uh, the church just like any other kind of part of society is definitely a place where uh, class struggle like has to be fought and it's important that it be fought there. Um, mm-hmm. So many of the Christians for socialism readings are kind of ringing my head now too. Just the, uh, just the words like, uh, you know, seeds of a people's church, the idea that there is a church for, uh, for the workers, for people um, mm-hmm. and for the uh, abolition of uh, the rich against poor. Uh, that's a real idea that I think Christians uh, forget about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just like, too, that this essay is great because Brezel Luxemburg isn't telling you not to be a Christian. 
she's just trying to explain why like you might have a hard time understanding what socialists are about and she's like why don't you just do something different like there's no reason that christians can't add communism of production to communism of consumption it's like a pretty natural addition uh and that's what she's asking you to do like you don't have to not go to church like believe whatever you want just uh maybe expand that belief a little bit more yeah i think so all right well here's another example of the why private property is bad uh why christians shouldn't believe in it and why you should go to church and tell all your friends uh i'm gonna i'm gonna give this essay 10 out of 10 hammers and sickles yeah that's not a good that's a rating system we haven't talked about before <laughs> so why not <laughs> uh five out of five evo morales crucifix hammer and sickles <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. Uh, if you liked what you heard, you can find us all over the internet. We're on Twitter, at The Magnificast. We're on Facebook, at The Magnificast. We have a Facebook discussion group called The Magnificast Basement. You can go there and talk more about Rosa Luxemburg or Christianity and communism in some other context or whatever you want. It's a good place full of good folks. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun little space. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. And uh, speaking of supporting us, there's a great way to support your support. Uh, I just made that one up right now, if you can't believe it. Um, at cottonbureau.com slash products slash the dash Magnificast. Uh, we're going <laughs> to tweet that out and Facebook it out. So if you can't, if you can't remember it by the time you're, you know, near a, a, a buying device, uh, you'll find it that way. Uh, all right. Um, thanks so much for listening again. Uh, also a couple of notes, uh, Amoria Shea Armstrong did all of our music, which is really great. And the Eulogical Spoon is going to play us out again and, uh, we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up you Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up where you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night.